All right, so how's that for a clickbaity title? I'll probably get in trouble for that one too, much like I'll get in trouble for this topic again, because every once in a while I get dragged into one of these types of conversations, whether it's change management is dead or some of these other things, and then uh, eventually somebody uh, writes a blog post about it in a very passive aggressive way, quoting my work and saying, some people say this um, instead of just kind of addressing me directly, but oh well. It is what it is. It's Sunday, November 27th. Welcome back to That Change Show. I'm your host, Jason Little. Once again, if you are listening to this in your favorite podcast listener thingy, you can go to the show notes of thatchangeshow.com and you can find the video versions on our YouTube channel, on the Lean Change Management YouTube channel, and you can see all the visual things that I'm going to be showing through this episode. So, um, I'm going to get into a few things. Number one, I'm going to look at some of the reasons why this 70% thing still exists. Uh, number two, people that have debunked it. I talked about this 10 years ago. Jen Frams talked about this. Heather Staggles talked about this. A bunch of people in the change community who've actually looked at the studies um, have really debunked this, the, this idea that 70% of changes fail. But every so often it seems to pop up on LinkedIn because... People who are posting it, they want eyeballs on their articles. They want eyeballs on 70% of changes fail, therefore you need to use these five steps to be able to ensure successful change, etc., etc. And this was a conversation from a private lean coffee session that I did a few weeks ago now. And basically the question was, how do you ensure successful change when we know that 70% of changes fail? So after I put the call on mute and went, Oh man, here we go again. Uh, we had a good conversation about it. So I'll show a little bit of data and information because there's a, hmm, a small number of 61 million hits uh, search results when you Google 70% of changes fail. They usually source the same data. They'll point to the five or six studies that have happened over the years. And then for the ones that are selling consulting services, they'll say, and here's how you avoid that, which I think we can all agree is, is a bit of nonsense. And then I want to get into, um, I don't think the stat, quote unquote, stat is ever going to go away, but how can we minimize it and what can we learn from it? And more importantly, how useful is it? So Kitty, uh, one of the comedians I follow says, you know, um, uh, if you were going to go skydiving and you knew that three out of four times the parachute didn't open, would you go? So it's kind of the same way with the 70% stat. If you know change fails 70% of the time, what's the point? Why even bother? So first, let's get into some of these sources. So when you Google this, you get a bunch of interesting things. So I really like the uh, the people also ask. So once again, uh, go to thatchangeshow.com and in the show notes, you can watch the video versions and you can see what I'm showing on screen. Otherwise, I'll just describe it briefly. So... People also ask, do 70% of changes fail? And this answer says, shockingly, change management research says otherwise. This widely cited stat has been quoted for almost two decades. However, a bit of investigation reveals that this number may have a little, bi uh, have little basis in reality. So basically, that's my whole attitude towards this. So thank you so much for watching. No, just kidding. Keep, let's just keep going. Um, is it true that 90% of all changes attempted in organizations fail? Uh, this one is on, is from Forbes, um, and this one says, in fact, research from McKinsey and Company shows that 70% of all transformations fail. So right away, we've got two conflicting articles at the top results of Google. What's the average percentage of changes that fail? 
Um, Forbes again, from employer resistance to lack of leadership role modeling. Role modeling. There are a myriad of reasons why 70% of changes fail. So there is a ton of information about this. I've even quoted this before. So when I started writing about this 10 years ago, uh, over 10 years ago, um, I was quoting the same things. So the main studies, you'll see these on the screen, but uh, 1995, uh, Cotter said about 30% of changes are successful. Turner and Crawford in 1998, 33% are successful. Prosci in 2005, 29% are successful. And uh, Standish Group and McKinsey, 30% and 34%. And all those quote unquote studies were from 95 to 2011. So I used to talk about these and I had a really overly simplified, irritating article about how to deal with that. And then I sort of learned a little bit and a year later I thought, well, wait a minute, how useful is this? And is it really true? So uh, Oxford Review actually went through all of those same studies and basically came to the conclusion that, well, n number one, it's false. And number two, the main reasons that a lot of these, these uh, studies cite is either a lack of a standardized change approach or um, the finickiness of humans. So we can, sure, we can create a standardized change approach, but we can't deal with the finickiness of humans, that they all respond to change a little bit differently. So over the, uh, I guess over the years, my attitude sort of uh, changed. Um, and I thought, hmm, it's not really useful because, like I mentioned in the opening, if we know we're gonna fail 70% of the time, why would we bother and what are we gonna do with that data? Because if you start to look at the articles that say 70% of these things fail and here's what you can do about it, they're all the same things get leadership buy-in, have a good plan, do good communication, just watered down nonsense, easy answers that aren't really useful. Um, when I think of the, uh, the changes that I've worked on and they've largely been cultural change, transformational change or project-based change. And project-based change could be, um, in my case, most often than not, it's a systems implementation. And I would say, any of those system implementations, the success rate's been 100% because the system's always gone live. It might be over budget, it might be over time. We might not have got any benefits out of it, but it's considered a success because it was out the door on time. The transformational ones, um, those are a little more difficult because I've always been in the camp that you can't really distill complex change down into it worked or it didn't work. You can't put that in a binary outcome. It just doesn't make any sense. So. You know, if I think about some of those transformations, those large transformations with multinational organizations, telecoms, banks, uh, other places that I've worked, if I had to put a binary outcome on it, I'd put a failure on every single one of them because none of them really lived up to what I thought they could have become for a whole variety of reasons. And it could be most of what we were trying to do with the change wasn't really necessary. So. You see this a lot, well, sorry, I see this a lot in enterprises. You know, the banks here in Canada who you know, people 
complain that I pick on them too much. It's because they're easy to pick on. They've been transforming for 15 years. They just keep running transformation programs over and over and over again. And every quarter they're posting record profits. And before agile transformation and digital transformation was a thing, it was exactly the same. So they kind of don't need it. They need small little incremental evolutions over time, not these big transformations. So I would say all of those transformations had quote unquote failed if you had to put a binary outcome on it, but they've all provided useful things and they've made some differences in certain areas. And I think really that's the way to look at it is stop getting, uh, you know, stop thinking about these, these big changes as being success or failure and look in that gigantic, nice, mushy gray area because that's where we see tons of benefits. Um, I would say most of the successes that, you know, I would consider a success is where I get people that think, hmm, you know what, the way that we work here isn't the way things need to be. And I can change that. And if I can't change that, I'll go somewhere else. So I've had lots of people who have moved on from organizations that I've worked with that went on to different, either different careers entirely or uh, different industries. So they're still working as change agents or agile coaches, but they're, they're no longer doing it in telecom because they didn't like it. Um, and I've worked with some teams that they had a better coping mechanism within the gigantic enterprise that they find themselves within. So um, and they have a lot more control about what they what they do on a daily basis. So I would consider those success. But when you get to the 70% stat, the, the, the key that most of them mention is all around ROI. So it's typically around they failed to achieve the results that we tried to guess at the beginning of the project. So there's an interesting article here from Harvard Business Review. It talks about theory E and O. Theory E being what they call hard change. So that might be a drastic cut in workforce, um, selling subsidiaries, merging, hard factors, things that are highly, uh, you know, things that you can kind of touch and feel and see. And then theory O is about the soft things. So cultural change, transformational change, things that are more about people, more from the ground up, more organic. Um, and it goes on to compare those two different theories about how what, what the goals need to look like, leadership and focus, what's different between theory E and theory O. Um, and the, really the, the intention of this article is to try to take the reasons why things fail and figure out a way out of it. And most of them are like that. So if I switch over to uh, this McKinsey article, changing change management. So research tells us that most change efforts fail, yet change methodologies are stuck in a pre-digital era and it's time to start catching up. So it cites that stat again, and then there's probably a click down at the bottom. Yep, subscribe to our newsletter. Um, and then do these things that every other article in the world suggests. So number one, provide just-in-time feedback, personalize the experience, sidestep hierarchy, build empathy and shared purpose, demonstrate progress. It's all the same things over and over again. So um, I'm going to switch into number one when we talk about this thing. Uh, actually, before I get into that, I'm going to look at uh, Tim, Tim Allen's article here uh, from a few years ago. There's some good information in this article, and I'll put all of these links in the show notes as well. And he talks about, um, well, first starting off with, uh, I'm sure this thing has been referenced many times, 
Um, could this be untrue? And some of these uh, quotes are interesting because I find whenever we perpetuate these things, like the 70% of changes fail and all of these other cute things, we, we misinterpret or we miss one small little comment. And the interesting thing with uh, this Hammer and Champy one from 93 is our unscientific estimate is that as many as 50 to 70% of organizations that undertake a re-engineering effort do not achieve the dramatic results they intended. There is a boatload of gray in that statement. So our unscientific estimate based on what? And uh, Michael Hammer followed up a couple of years afterwards and said, um, unfortunately, the simple descriptive observation has been wildly misrepresented <laughs> and there's no inherent success or failure rate for engineering. Then along came HBR in 2000. The brutal fact is about 70% of all changes fail. So it's interesting that we've got all these, all this data and all these studies that say the opposite things. And when I really think about it, um, now let's switch gears into how is it useful? So if, if we want to use the 70% stat, you know, who, who's most likely to use it? And like I said, it's people who want to push certifications or they want eyeballs on their articles um, because it's one of those clickbaity things that gets people's eyes on it. So, you know, people who've actually read through the studies and read some of these articles and discovered that they're nonsense um, uh, tend to roll their eyes and want to attack the article. And, you know, people who are, I would say that... The, the less experienced people are with change, the more likely they're going to latch on to some of these things because they can't figure out why the change in their organization isn't working. So they want to latch on to something to, number one, make them feel good about it. Number two, maybe give them some insights into an article they can send to leaders to say, here's the five steps that we need to do. But it's really oversimplified and it's not useful because we can't really do anything with that information. You know, you, you could say that every change in an organization is different. And just because something didn't work right in one organization doesn't mean it won't work in another and vice versa. So if we did try a certain approach to change in organization one and it worked, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in organization two. So what can we do about this 70% stat? Um, I generally ignore it now. I used to post in the comments and say, you know, this is false, this is wrong, here's links to 20 different people who've actually gone through the studies and talk about why either the studies were flawed or why they didn't make sense, or consider the source. You know, it's in a certification and training body's best interest to scare people into buying their certifications that, you know, 70% of these changes fail. Use our magic method. But you know, the, the the title I had on this podcast, yeah, it was a little bit clickbaity, but if 70% of changes fail, does that mean 70% of us suck at our jobs? Of course not. That doesn't make any sense. Does that mean 70% of leadership is incompetent? Well, maybe that one's true. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it, it just, uh, it's good fodder for interesting conversations, but it doesn't do anything useful for us. And the other articles that talk about... Um, if 70% of changes fail, here's what you can do to avoid that. You can Google that and you can find another 60 million articles that have the exact same five to eight steps and they're all the same. 
Make sure to get leadership buy-in. Make sure you have grassroots support. Make sure you're focusing on the culture. Make sure you're communicating. Make sure you have a dedicated change team. It's all the same things over and over again. And it just reduces or it takes away the complexity of change in the first place. So, you know, I've worked on changes that have had leadership support and it made it worse because some leaders don't agree with the approach that you use for change. Um, some leaders, most leaders, I would say, don't really care either way, but there's some that they don't necessarily need to be supportive, but if they're against it, you're almost going to be in worse shape because they are the other people who can put a stop to it. Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen whole change teams just cut. So whenever organizations go through their mass layoffs, especially enterprise organizations, the first people to go are the agile coaching team because they're not producing any value. You know, I'm looking at the spreadsheet. This department is costing money. It's a cost center. It's not a value producing center. And whoosh, they're all wiped out. Uh, change managers have been talking about this forever. How do we get a seat at the table? How do we prove our value? It's difficult because we don't provide, in my view, any direct value. It's indirect value, provided we've got um, a certain stance that we take towards change. So if we're there to kind of uh, to, to serve and help solve problems, there's indirect value with that. But it's not something you can measure. So in that same Lean Coffee where I was asked this question, how do you ensure successful change when you know 70% of changes fail? Um, we left that conversation as... Just think about how useful that number is and how you would use it in an organization and whether or not other people would care about it. And then uh, we talked about the, uh, the binary aspect. It's either a success or it's a failure and nothing in between. Um, so, you know, I guess just to wrap this up, because I do do these uh, shows live and I don't want to drag this out for too long because there is so much information out there. Um, about people who've done the same thing that I'm doing right now is just saying, you know what, let's stop talking about this. Um, let's try to focus on what actually matters. Let's start to think about things like, imagine you're talking to a leader and you're presenting your, your, your change strategy that you're going to follow this method and these steps. Are you going to use the stat to try to scare or coerce them into following the strategy or the steps that you want to use? So, um, yes, these studies say 70% of the changes fail. So here's the behavior that I need from you to, to ensure that they're going to be successful. Um, the only thing I found helpful is try to put enough guardrails in place. So if we're getting kind of too far off the track, um, if we're, if we start to slowly turn into the wrong direction, we want feedback loops so we can course correct. And this is really getting away from a linear approach to change particularly with alignment. Um, you know, traditional thinking says uh, create a vision, create a strategy, have a change strategy, create your plan, communicate it out, execute it, etc. But we never go back and we challenge the vision or, or the strategy. And um, in a feedback-driven approach, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to be able to go back. Maybe it's every month, maybe it's every two months, maybe it's every quarter, but have a good feedback loop to say, you know what, for the last three months, we've been kind of going in this direction. Um, this is what our, our vision, our purpose, our strategy, whatever it is, was. What's changed about that as we've actually done small experiments and started to work towards that future? Is that still the future we want to get to? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is no. 
but that's what we need to do. We need guardrails in place to course correct where we're constantly challenging how aligned we are towards this change. If we still want to go in that same direction, and then if we don't, what are we going to do about it? Because a lot of the times th there's that sunk cost fallacy, right? We've spent a lot of time and money pursuing this change. Now we just want that change to get done. And we're going to keep pursuing it. Number one, because that status quo is easier. It's just easier to keep going than to say, you know what? We really missed the mark over the last three months and we should really try to do something different. So I would say the next time you're confronted with this 70% quote unquote stat, um, ask yourself how useful it is in your context and look at the source. Where is it coming from? And what's the agenda behind the people that are pushing it? And more often than not, you're going to find that it's uh, about somebody who's trying to get eyes on their, their blog article, or it's a firm that wants to sell you training or a framework or consulting services. So that's it for this week's edition of That Change Show. Remember to hit like and subscribe if you are watching this on YouTube. You can catch all the extra episodes at thatchangeshow.com. And finally, if you are listening to this in your podcast listener thingamajiggy, go to thatchangeshow.com. You can catch the video versions and you can see some of the visual artifacts that I was showing. I'm Jason Litter, your host of That Change Show, and I'll see you next time.